I'm thankful for all of the most tumultuous events because those things have led to where I am now. We couldn't replicate where we are now by any other set of circumstances, truly, which I think is fascinating to me. You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the roller coaster of life with me, Rebecca Clark. During this second series, we'll be hearing from a variety of new voices as each week my special guest joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. Life is full of highs and lows, and yet there's always hope. After all, we live to tell the tale. Welcome to this new episode of Sharing Tales. Today I am joined by someone whose company I find immensely entertaining and lovely, Jason Merch. Jason was born in the Silicon Valley in California and raised in a remote part of Northern California called Trinidad with a view of the Pacific Ocean that he didn't fully appreciate as a child. His father was a firefighter and police officer, while his mother was a doctor at the local university's health centre. With an early passion for film and story, Jason graduated from Chapman University's School of Film and Television, where he received a BFA in film production with an emphasis on writing and directing. Recognition of his talent came early and he was awarded Best Director for his film Ali in Chapman's Student Filmmaker Awards back in 2004. Professionally, today Jason is a feature film and television producer and serves as the Director of Script Services for Stage32.com, the entertainment industry's largest online networking platform. Over the course of his entertainment career, Jason has worked with talent including Emmy winners Christopher Lloyd, Keenan Thompson and Carol Kane, Oscar winner Mel Brooks, the actor Mads Mikkelsen, and rising star Jacob Tremblay. An avid traveller and explorer, Jason has been fortunate enough to travel to over 25 countries, including the United Arab Emirates, where he lived in both Abu Dhabi and Dubai for a total of seven years. He currently resides in Arizona with his incredible wife, Martina, who is a life coach for women and entrepreneur herself, and has traveled to over 70 countries, as she enjoys reminding Jason. And together they enjoy backpacking, cooking, and booking last-minute flight tickets after a few glasses of wine. And, you know, who wouldn't? Jason, hello, my friend. Welcome. Thank hello. you so much. <laughs> uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm fired up. I'm so pleased to hear and to see you. We're obviously recording this remotely. Now, we know each other because we used to work together in Abu Dhabi, but we haven't been in touch properly for a little while. And I didn't realize you'd moved to Arizona until Mm -hmm. I got your bio uh, ahead of today. So how are you? What are you doing in Arizona? And how have you been finding these past, you know, crazy 12 months with the pandemic? Well, again, it, it's it's so lovely to be here. So <laughs> lovely to uh, to see your face. You know, it's interesting you say, you know, we're doing so many things remotely now, obviously. And that's mm. such a big part of life in general, I think. And I think that for me was one of the biggest changes. Networking and, and, and being a part of the film industry, you're constantly taking meetings or, or going out to drinks or dinners or lunches. And suddenly all of that just stopped. Mm. And sort of two things happened. One, you, you know, you're locked in your home largely for the most part and doing Zoom calls and Skype meetings and things of that nature. But then you also, we sort of realized, Martina and I, that you can be anywhere in the world at mm. that. And as long as your backdrop is, you know, remotely professional, uh, 
you can, doesn't matter what country you're in or time zone, you know, that sort of thing. And so we were looking for a place to live. And we lived in a couple of different places. And, you know, initially when she was out here, we were up in Montana. Then we moved down to Utah for almost exactly a year. Again, because we love the outdoors and we love camping and hiking and, mm. and Utah offers so much of that. And then we realized that Utah probably wasn't going to be the final destination. And so we just kept heading south and we ended up in Arizona. Because again, when when you're you're locked down and you can be anywhere, why not try a couple different places out? Mm. I love that attitude. Yeah, no, and and you know, again, it's it's tough. It took us a while to get there to realize, oh wait, we can still kind of do whatever we want now. Hmm. As long as we're able to show up for whatever virtual meeting we need to take, let's do it. And that I think has been the the blessing of this whole god-awful situation is that I think most people are waking up to the fact that we don't have to be tied to an office or tied to a commute or tied to uh, you know that that grind, so to speak. We're already planning okay, when we can travel, fully travel and get out from under other sorts of responsibilities, you know, rent or things like that, where else could we go? Where mm. could we live abroad for a period of time? That sort of thing. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because that's definitely happened over here in the UK too. And specifically from my experience, I'm based in London. And although we haven't moved, you know, you're seeing, we're kind of talking about this mass exodus of a lot of people who are living in London for work, or were in the kind of commuter belt and uh, taking this an opportunity to get out, to, to live much further away or in more rural areas and really making some choices, as, as you said, about how they want to live their lives and not kind of being under that pressure to live in a place where you might not be as happy as you would elsewhere. Sure, absolutely. And I think that there's something so interesting about that. And at one point, we sort of turned to each other and we said, wait a second, why are we playing by these rules <laughs> anymore? We can do whatever we want. We can go wherever we want. Let's not play by the rules of you know, having a, a smaller than we would like apartment in an overly mm. cramped area and a traffic jam that you hate. I watched my parents largely go through that very similar grind. And I have friends that go through that very similar grind right now. And I thought, but why? What are we what are we doing here? Why are we tethered to this one area? It just doesn't make sense anymore. And mm. I think that's, you know, to your point earlier about, you know, traveling and 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 different countries and and being around the world and whatnot, that's sort of the attitude that we've taken for most of our professional careers too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I do think about the entertainment industry in the US and this pull to LA and California where you've lived and worked before. How do you think that that might change though when things do return to whatever normal might look like? Do you think that you will still be able to live outside of California and, and work in the way that you have been? I think so. I think, you know, California, Hollywood, LA, that, mm. it's always going to have that allure. But now, you know, the, the film industry, whether it's physical production or development offices, production offices, that sort of thing, uh, they don't need to be tethered to a specific, any specific location. Mm. So when you think of big filmmaking hubs, whether it's Los Angeles, New York, London, Sydney, uh, these types of places, you'll always have those big hubs, but I think you're going to see a lot more productions going to be spread out across the world. Production offices are going to be spread out across the world. Um, so I think there is going to be a, there will be that, you know, uh, um, sort of expansion across the world. And again, with, you know, sites like Stage 32, um, where I run their development services, it's all about connecting people who are otherwise completely disconnected. 
it's a social media platform. It's a networking platform. And so people are able to, having never met in person, collaborate on projects. And I think that's where it's really going to be de- mm. decentralized because the you know internet and the platforms like that make it possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing that in my work, the number of new collaborators and partners that I've met in the last year and working on you know really closely and quite intense projects and never met these people in real, you know, in real life at all. Sure. I can only see that increasing really. And yeah, everything's shifting in that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we're always going in that direction. I think this pandemic just sort of really accelerated it. I mean, the same thing with, with entertainment itself, you know, Netflix, Disney plus Hulu, you know, all of these streamers are suddenly going to be far more uh, lucrative than say theatrical, you know, Mm. uh, releases, things like that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's going to change the way we do everything. You know, I mean, how many people now virtually order their groceries and don't even go to a grocery store anymore? We were placed in this situation where now you're trapped in your home and then you get used to that situation and then suddenly going backwards, uh, or, or going back, I shouldn't say going backwards, going back feels totally odd to be walking. Yeah, because you adapt. Because you adapt. You adapt and you, and it just becomes your new reality, you know? Yeah. It's funny that we've kind of ended up delving into kind of travel and location because that's a a big part of your life, really. And I was thinking about filmmaking or storytelling and location's a big part of, of telling stories. And so I thought, let's get started with the first chapter that you wanted to speak about today. And by my reckoning, we're heading to California. We are. We well. I was born and raised in California, as you said, and it was a very small town, a very small community. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I always believed that I was, you know, destined to be out of there. I was destined to be traveling the world. My whole philosophy, even as a kid, as a teenager, was the world is so big and so vast. How could anyone spend their entire life in one city, one state, one country, you know, what have you? And so I was always really anxious to get out and explore. And one of the draws for filmmaking was that you were afforded that opportunity to travel to all sorts of different exotic locations. Now, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I'm, I'm teased. This is, this is called a tease in the industry. I'm teasing another <laughs> chapter. <laughs> I'm teasing the other chapter, but the whole idea was I didn't know where I would end up, but I knew I was going to end up somewhere really exciting and big. But, you know, going back to California, I Mm. knew that I had, I first had to get out of Trinidad, Humboldt County, which is six hours north of San Francisco. Everybody thinks that California, yeah, everybody thinks California ends at San Francisco. And there's about six to eight more hours of road that go up into the Redwood Curtain and, and Humboldt County. And which, by the way, Humboldt County is known for really only a few things. I mean, you know, redwood trees that are 300 feet tall, mm-hmm. a weed industry that I didn't realize this, but 60% of the weed in the world is made uh, or, or harvested from from Northern California where I grew up. Okay. My, father, my father was a police officer, so I never, you know, found out what it was like. <laughs> he said he would kill me. He was. He, <laughs> we were sitting on the sofa one time and there was one of these like, talk to your kids about drugs. Commercials comes on, right? And my dad turns to me, he says, Jason, if you ever did drugs, I would be so sad and so disappointed in you that I'd probably have to kill you. <laughs> and I looked at him, I kind of laughed. I was like, hey, yeah, dad. And he goes, no, look at me. I would kill you. And so I, I that never- That was deterrent enough. 
yeah, that was a deterrent. That was the one conversation we had. It, it was effective. So, <laughs> you know, so I grew up in this area that had this massive, you know, sort of very unusual hippie drug culture that I never mm. partook in. But I also knew that I had to, you know, I, I wanted to be in film school. I wanted to be a director. I didn't know what that meant. You know, I just knew that I wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg as every young film school student does. Mm. You know, you want to be Spielberg, Tarantino or Scorsese, <laughs> you know, one of these guys. And then you quickly get to film school and you realize that you're not any of them. And, mm. you know, you need to find out who you are. I went to Chapman University, which was down in Orange County. And at the time, it was a very, it was a much smaller film school than it is now. And went to school for writing and directing, storytelling, and, you know, made some short films and tried to put everything that I had, you know, learned into practice and you find your voice and whatnot. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a time where you're, far away from home. At this time, it was the farthest I'd ever lived for any period of time, you know, away and you're going to university. And uh, I remember it was the first weekend of, of school, you know, it's orientation week, the whole thing. My parents dropped me off and I was like, okay, well, bye. <laughs> and they said, what? You know, my mom was so upset that I wasn't crying, that I wasn't sad. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, man, I'm ready. I'm rare and I'm ready it's to go. It's time. Yeah. It's time. Let's do this thing. You know, so I was just excited about the journey. So that was, and that was a whole, you know, again, it's the beginning of that different, that, that new life, that new normal, that new experience. Mm -hmm. And then from there, just this whole, you know, being in LA, being in Southern California, being, you know, in, you know. The OC. Yeah, being in the OC, being in Hollywood, you know, being next to Disneyland, all these like really fun, exciting. Again, it's like it's like being in a new world. So you were down there, um, you did your degree and then you one of the things that I always remember when when we were friends working together is that you were the first adult grown man who I've ever experienced have such just unbridled glee at the thought of Disneyland. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to work there? Disney itself, Disneyland as a child, uh, being again a kid, a kid from California, you would make the exodus every year. You would go down to Disneyland for, the, for a summer, you know, a week in my family. And it was just the week you look forward to the entire year. You walk into Disneyland and it's like walking into a movie, a fantasy, you know, and you're walking into this whole different world. And it was so fun when I went to Chapman, it's only 10 minutes away from from Disneyland. And right. it was my first real job at all, aside from mowing lawns and, and sweeping at the floor of a local store. It was my first real adult job. And it was just as they were opening up California Adventure, which was a brand new park in the Disneyland Resort. I think I was like 18, 19 at the time. And I went and applied for a job. And I said, I don't know what, again, I don't know what I'm going to do here, but I would love to be a part of it. And so I ended up being uh, what's called an attractions host, which is basically a ride operator. Okay. You turn the ride on, you put the people in the seats, you get the people out of their seats, you turn the ride on, you do that, you know, so much that you're dreaming about it in your sleep to a certain point. But it was the, it was one of the best jobs of my life because you get to go to Disneyland every day. And then all the fun things that go along with that, you know, you're behind the scenes, you get to see how things work. And for me, you know, the magic, of course, you know, of Disney is really exciting because you see it on people's faces and you, you feel mm -hmm. it yourself. But then to go back behind the scenes, it's almost, it's very similar to filmmaking in that way, right? We know how to set up a camera, set up a microphone, the lights, you know, cut the scene together to 
evoke that emotion that you want from your audience. And in Disneyland, we're doing it the same way where behind the scenes, you see how all the gears move mm. and that's really exciting. But the cool part is to watch it, the, you know, the, the reaction on people's faces. I remember one time on, it was Christmas Eve Eve. And so it was the night before Christmas Eve. I was, you know, had to work there. I had to work over the Christmas holiday. So I had to stay home. So I was by myself, uh, you know, in my empty dorm room living, you know, there and, and working at Disneyland. But on one Christmas Eve, a few of the other guys who had been there for years came over and they said, Hey, Jason, you want to go tour the park? And I was like, I don't, what do you mean? He's like, well, we're going to, after the park closes, we're going to go, we're going to tour it. And these guys who had worked there for, you know, I mean, five or 10 years by now took me through all the little back alleys and back exits and underground tunnels and Walt's apartments and all these like very cool you know, places, you know, you're walking mm-hmm. through Pirates of the Caribbean. We're walking through the Haunted Mansion and taking photos with the characters. It was the, and we walked out of there at six in the morning. It was the coolest experience of my life. I mean, as you described that, it sounded like a movie, you know, it sounded like some kind of adventure, night at the museum type kind of film. And it's funny, I mean, growing up in the, for me in the 80s, 90s, Disneyland and Disney World, I remember seeing those TV adverts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for me and my family, that it, it was only ever going to be a dream. And in fact, I think I only knew of one kid at my school that, you know, went with his family. And I still haven't been as an adult, actually. I can only just imagine, I think. And I, th- would you say that? the real magic is in having the opportunity to go there as a child when you still have that kind of innocence and sense of wonder? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple aspects of it. I think that one, if you go as a child, there's that magical experience. Mm. I think the next one is taking your kids mm. when they're children and seeing it play out on their face. My sister has five kids. She's got four boys and a girl who are all under the age of 10. And I think she she took them to Disneyland once and that was the fun was watching her kids experience yeah. it for the first time. Martina, my wife, she has never been and she is like I don't I don't get it. I have, you know, I just <laughs> yeah. it's it's not necessarily interesting. She's like, "Okay, I'll go, but it's, you know, it doesn't have that same magic, but I think you're right." Experiencing it either as a child or through the eyes of a child, I think suddenly makes it a totally different experience. Yeah. That makes sense. And so the timing that we're talking about when you were down there and working there, 2000, 2001, is that right? Yeah, this was the the summer of 2000 going into, yeah, 2001. Exactly yeah. right. Because when you wrote to me, you had said that this felt like the last summer of innocence. Mm. Do you want to talk a bit about what that means to you? I think that, you know, we all sort of realize that, you know, at the, the summer of 2001 from May, June, July, August, right up until September mm. feels, at least in my mind, very different to everything that came after. There was, you know, uh, the world sort of, you know, again, it's one of these things where there's always a before and there's always an after and there's an event mm. that's right in the middle that changes everything. And obviously this was before September 11th. And I remember that summer was fantastic for me because I was working during the day at Entertainment Tonight. It was my first big internship. 
and I'm driving on to the Paramount lot, which is in Hollywood on Melrose Avenue. Mm-hmm. And you you drive up there every day and you're walking onto a soundstage and you're reporting about the things in Hollywood and you're going on these little film shoots as an intern. I was a, you know, again, I was an 18 year old kid and mm-hmm. it felt like I was in Hollywood. I was, ma- I had made it. And, yeah. you know, whether I'm running a beta tape down to an edit bay or I'm, I'm helping a director on a set, you know, doing grunt work, peeling labels off a tape every day. I was like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> and then from there, I would drive about two hours in traffic, as we were talking about, in the middle of a heat wave in my parents' Volvo 850 that had no air conditioning and only got one radio channel. <laughs> Because I had spilled coffee on the entire console the summer before. And so nothing worked in this car. And so I'd have to drive with the windows down in 90 degree heat, which you're going to have to do that Celsius conversion because I'm terrible at it. Uh, but I'm, yeah, uh, it, was, it was hot. It was hot. It was 30s. It was 30s, you know, 30s to 40s. Driving down there and getting changed into my little Disney outfit, uniform, costume, whatever you want to call it, and going and working from, you know, 6 p.m. until midnight. So I could do it all over again, you know, the next day, wake up at five, go to entertainment tonight. And I probably lost about 10 pounds that summer and had the most fun of my life. Mm. There definitely came a point at which, you know, every day felt like it was sunshine. Every day felt like it was the best day of, of my life and, and my my young adult life. Mm. And then one day, you know, you turn on you know, you turn on the TV randomly on a Tuesday or you get a phone call. You know, in our case, we got phone calls from our parents at six in the morning. And, you know, anytime you get a phone call from your parent at six in the morning, you bolt up right out of bed. In this case, my dad calls me at six in the morning and he says, a plane just flew into one of the Twin Towers. And I said, you know, I was groggy. I was like, okay. You know, I didn't know. I couldn't even process what that what that meant Mm. and sort of go back to bed sleepily. And then my roommate at the time got a phone call from his mom and she was hysterical and she was crying and and he did the bolt right up out of bed kind of what's going on and of course you turn on the tv and and we we know obviously the the aftermath and everything Mm -hmm. but that changed i mean that changed the world that was the first time in the history of disneyland for instance that disneyland closed that day right completely closed and they were closed the following day as well and it was interesting i was just reading bob Iger's book and bob Iger is the former ceo of disney and he said that he you know he received that call and and disneyland was thought to potentially be another west coast right Mm-hmm. And so they they made the decision right there to close close for the day. I was not scheduled to work that day. I had friends obviously that were who as they were walking out of the park, you know, no music playing, nothing, you know, it's it's a ghost town and it was just the most eerie feeling mm-hmm. for them. And then going back to that, you know, when I went back to work the first shift, which is over the weekend, obviously there's a cloud that hangs over everything, there's a pall that's sort of over everything, but then there were also armed men with, you know, police officers with machine guns inside Disneyland. And those two images just didn't yeah. comport. They don't, they don't make sense mm-hmm. together. There's, mm-hmm. there, why, are there, why are there machine guns inside Disneyland or automatic weapons inside Disneyland? And it just was the, you could just tell something in the world shifted. So when I say it was a sort of summer of innocence, yeah. you, you forget when you're as, as a kid, you know, even as a young adult, 18 year old kid, you, you forget that there's terrible things in the world that can happen at any moment. And you, you're just enjoying life. And then something sort of makes you grow up straight away. And that's mm. that was that experience for me where all of a sudden I've became far more globally minded in a way that I hadn't yeah. before. I, you know, I think we all sort of did. If you asked anybody to pick out 
uh, Afghanistan on a map on September 10th, nobody would have been able to do it. Mm. It's one of those moments where if you were alive and old enough, you know exactly where you were, as you mm-hmm. described when you hear, heard the news, and it's going to stay with you, you know, for the rest of your life. And I think it's interesting for your story in that the age that you were and these kind of joyful, innocent things that you were doing. And did it feel like it came to an abrupt halt? Did you continue working after that September? Were you, was it time for you to move on? Or No, it's a great question. I kept working. It wasn't until I traveled to Australia for a study abroad that I ended up leaving Disneyland. And that's the reason I, I did it. I had mm. to you know, go off for my spring semester off to Australia. We still very much you know, were in Disneyland. But again, a little bit of that magic was gone because even as an employee... Suddenly, you're walking through metal detectors. Suddenly, the mm-hmm. security team is searching your back. Suddenly, they're asking you, you know, fairly invasive security questions, which obviously is designed to keep everyone safe. But you know, there's yeah. still metal detectors that you have to walk through to go to Disneyland, and that sort of permeated the entire world. Yeah, something definitely shifted. I think in all mm. of our consciousness about the world yeah. and our safety in it, that sort of thing. Definitely. Switching gears slightly, moving on to the next chapter, a new act. And we're moving geography again to another country mm-hmm. in another part of the world. And I think we're probably fast forwarding around seven, eight years by my calculations, maybe seven yes, years. Yes, this would be 2009. Yeah. How did this adventure come to pass? This was totally, again, totally random. One of the things we talk about all the time is with film, it's going to take you to all sorts of exotic destinations. And at the time, I thought it's going to be London or it'll be Sydney, Australia to shoot films there. It'll be anywhere around the world. And <laughs> never in a million years that I think it would be the Middle East, especially coming out of yeah. you know 9-11 and everything else. I mean, you couldn't say Middle East without having certain connotations to it, right? Yeah. You think of Gulf War One, you think of Gulf War Two, you all of these sort of tumultuous uh, events in, in world history. At the time, I was working at a company called Storyline Entertainment with Neil Marin and the late great Craig Zaden, and they had produced Chicago. When I'd come on, they had just done The Bucket List and Hairspray. These guys were big feature film, you know, producers. Really, they knew showmanship in a big way, mm. and still do. Sadly, Craig uh, passed away a few years ago, but Neil Marin is still very much active in the industry. And I came on as, you know, one of their assistants. I assisted Neil. And then through a turn of events, you know, several turn of events, ended up running their television and feature film development. And we had, you know, sold projects to NBC and ABC and Lifetime and you know, we're developing films with studios. And again, it was one of these things. It was like, oh man, I have made it. I am in Hollywood. I just sold something to NBC. This is exciting. And eventually, you know, you start to say, okay, what, what's the next thing? What's, mm-hmm. where am I going? And I was driving to work one day, minding my own business. And a friend of mine calls me up and he says, Jason, I just heard about this job. It's uh, fantastic. It's a company called Image Nation. They just struck a deal with Hyde Park Entertainment. They've got a boatload of money to make movies and they're looking for a creative executive. And I said, this is fantastic. And he said, here's the thing. And I said, okay. And he said, the job is based in Abu Dhabi. And I said, where the hell's Abu Dhabi? What is that in the valley somewhere? Where's Abu Dhabi? And he goes, no, it's, it's out by Dubai. It's in the Middle East. And I said, oh, 
oh, okay. And so I call up my parents and I say, so I just got this, this job offer. What do you, what do you think? And they're like, I mean, I, I, I guess you could go for it. I mean, you really, what's in the Middle East? They don't have movies out there, you know, that sort of thing. Again, I was like, you know what, what the hell? I called up somebody who knew the vice president over at Hyde Park and I said, would you mind getting me an interview? And so I got an interview and met with Patrick Aiello, the, the VP over there, and we hit it off great. He said, I want you to come meet the CEO of, of Hyde Park later. And so about two months later, I come back and I meet with Ashok Amitraj, who we know we both know very well, a very dear man, very smart man, producer of uh, hundreds of films. Yeah, yeah. Great guy. I meet him and he says, you know, great. I would love you to come back and meet the chief operating officer of Image Nation who will be in town in August. Uh, let me know if you want to meet him. I said, great. I'd love to. A few months later, I come back and meet Stefan Bruner, who at the time was uh, the COO of, of Image Nation. And again, I walk into the room and it's Ashok, it is Patrick Aiello, and it's uh, Stefan Bruner all sitting around and I come and sit down and they're laughing and you know how Ashok is, he's slapping knees and talking about the projects they're going to do. And I'm trying to chime in whenever I can, but it's like, don't bother us, kid. Don't bother us. We're talking. <laughs> And so I sat there and after about seven minutes, they turned to me and they say, okay, well, we'll let you know. And the door closes behind me and I go, what the hell just happened? I just tanked this interview. I, it was going so well. And <laughs> so I'm driving back. I dri I'm driving back from, from the valley to my office. I'm like trying to change my clothes as I'm driving to like get out of my interview clothes and get into like normal jeans and t-shirts and stuff. I call up my parents and I'm like, don't worry. I didn't get it. I'm not going to the Middle East. And my mom's like, oh my God, thank God. I was praying you wouldn't get that job. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> And so as I'm on the phone with her, I get, you know, the call interrupt and it's it's Patrick Aiello. And he says, well, what do you think of the what do you think of the job? And I said, it's a you know, I say all the things that you think of, you know, that you, that you say in an interview. It's a great yeah. opportunity. It's a great opportunity for anybody who gets it. Um, you know, I wish you guys the best of luck in your search. You know, what do you think of, of Stefan Bruner? I thought he was he's a great guy. You know, I could definitely work for 12 hours a day with him. And they said, great. Well, we'd like to offer you the position. <laughs> and I remember just saying. Okay. He says, are you driving right now? I said, yeah, I, I, I'm just driving back to my office. And he said, okay, you know what? Take 24 hours, think it over and, and give me a call back. Mm. Uh, we want to move quickly on this. So I hang up the phone and I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. Because now it's, it's real, right? Yeah. In an interview, you say what it takes to get the job, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, you want, you want me to move to the Middle East? Sure. I'll sell everything and move to the Middle East. You want to go to the moon? I've got a spacesuit in my closet. Let's go to the moon. <laughs> I don't care. You know, I'll do this right now. Once, once it's real and once you're now it's on you. And I said, oh my God, am I really going to do this? What do I do with my car? What do I do with, you know, my girlfriend? What do I do with my apartment? What do I, you know, what, oh my, what do I do? Had you been to the UAE? Never, this never point? in my life. No. I, had never been to, I had never been to Dubai. I started, this is, this is how terribly ill-informed I was. I went on Wikipedia and Google image search to try and Google Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And at the time there was very little there. So I'm looking, mm -hmm. I'm looking at the same image, you know, the same four images of like a, a random ministry building with a giant. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, is this all there is? What is it? You know, you obviously know the world's tallest building is being built. It hadn't been built at the time. Back then it was still called the Burj Dubai. But again, it was, mm. it was a very odd experience. And so I said, you know what? All right, let's, let's do it. And so that was in August of 2009. And by September of 2009, 
I was on a plane to Abu Dhabi. And I remember distinctly, and this is the only time I had ever heard the pilot say it, refer to it in this way. We're landing in Abu Dhabi's airport and he says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle East. And I said, oh my God, this is, this is unreal. And mm-hmm. land there. And of course, you know, you've, you've spent many years there. It was unlike anything you can prepare yourself for. This was right before the, when they still had it, the Abu Dhabi Film Festival. And this mm-hmm. is during the peak of the Abu Dhabi Film Festival when they were flying out Orlando Bloom and Naomi Watts to do, you know, their opening ceremonies. And you're in the back room of the Emirates Palace Hotel, which is a $6 billion hotel. And you're mm-hmm. eating you know, caviar off of toast squares and drinking Dom Perignon and, you know, smoking Cuban cigars. And again, I'm sitting around there as a, at this point, 27-year-old kid going like, what am I doing here? What is this? This is my life. It's the most bizarre thing. (laughs) Crazy stuff happens there. And that's one of the things I, I probably still miss around being in Abu Dhabi is that you never you never knew what was going to happen and because of the nature of the place and the kind of people involved anything could happen totally and kind of in this film space one of my kind of lasting memories was I was in town because I'd actually moved back to the UK at that point but I was back in town for work and with a colleague and we get this phone call saying Jude Law's in town he'd like to meet <laughs> he'd like to meet with some some filmmakers can it, you know, in two days time, can it happen? Sure. You know, and next thing you know, you're having lunch with Jude Law because he just happens to be in town. There is, you know, using the word magic again, there is some magic to that part of the world with those kinds of episodes or experiences that happen. That's exactly right. And I had one very similar years later where the chairman of, of Imagination at the time calls me up and says, hey, Jason, you're you're working this weekend. Uh, there's somebody we need to meet. I walk into the office on like a, a Saturday and it's Mel Gibson in there. <laughs> Mel Gibson's in there pitching a, a, a Viking movie that he wants to make. And I'm sitting across the table from Mel Gibson hearing this pitch and being like, again, where am I? What is this? It was the most interesting, like, yeah, bizarre experience or... Uh, another buddy of mine at the time calls me up and says, hey, so uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's mom's in town. Did you feel like going on a desert safari with Leonardo DiCaprio's mom? And I said, eh, I'm not doing anything. What the hell? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we go and, you know, you do the typical desert safari, which is, you know, you yeah. drive on the dunes and you eat all the supposedly local food, which is not local at all. You watch <laughs> belly dancers and you're sitting around a fire with Leonardo DiCaprio's mom. And it was... Yeah. Whirling dervishes. Right. Exactly. Right. So, (laughs) so, so bizarre, uh, but a lot of fun. Again, that you're right. It's it's total magic when those things happen. And it's, it's expected to have the unexpected happen in a weird way. Mm. And I think, I don't know if you agree, but it feels to me as a place, and I experienced this, that it, it does change your life. There are so many opportunities to be had out there. And, you know, if you're in the right place and with a bit of luck, I I hadn't worked in the film industry before. I'd been working in government for years here. And so there was no way I would have made such a pivot or been able to here in the UK unless I kind of gone right back to the beginning and started over. And so I always think that's another exciting thing about that part of the world, that there are opportunities for for things to, to be quite different than when you first arrive. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. And, you know, there's a reinvention aspect of it, for mm, sure, personally mm. and professionally. And there's the, also the aspect of, hey, can you do this? 
can you can you knock this out for me? Hey, we're going to we're, you know, can you just be in charge of this project? Yeah. You know, whether you at the time believe you can or not, if you say yes, like suddenly like you said, you're you're in a totally different direction. So much of it is just, all right, we'll figure it out as we go. We'll try and make it work. Very successful people out there mm-hmm. like yourself are were able to to do those things and just say, yeah, let's let's give it a shot because it is the Wild West in a certain way where you can make yourself or reinvent yourself in a way. Mm. So you were living out there and working out there for about seven years in total. In total. Yeah. So five years in Abu Dhabi and then went back to Dubai for a totally separate project. But yeah, so a good majority of my life at that point. Yeah, pretty long time. Um, and so when you decided to leave, you went back to... Los Angeles. California? Yeah, that was California. Yeah. It's interesting. Like you said, the experience is transformative in a way that suddenly when I was back in LA, LA felt very small mm. and it felt very closed in and suffocating in a way because we just spent the, you know, the better part of five years at that point traveling the world, being in this exotic location. And it was the irony was not lost on me that people from around the world want to go to LA. They want to go to Hollywood. They want to make it, mm. you know, there. And I just couldn't wait to get out. I couldn't wait to get mm. out of that that area again. It didn't have that same magic like I was like I was saying earlier. That was a that was a fairly traumatic period mm. of time for that, you know, that that first year I was back was really, was really rough. And it obviously ended up going through a divorce and and moving out. And it was the first time that really reevaluating, is this the life I want to be leading? Or is this just something that's, I'm on the train and the train's going on the track and there's nothing I can do. And that was the big point. This is 2015, where I said, no, I've got, I've got to sort of figure this out before it's too late. Mm -hmm. It was a big, big year of, of massive personal upheaval, you know? Mm. I think it's interesting, the kind of a psychology of being an expat, because when you're living away from home, there is an element of being different, of being exotic yourself, right? Of And whenever you go back home to visit friends and family, you're treated so kindly and well, everyone's so pleased to see you. It, it can really play with you. I hear you about the difficulties of moving back, because I felt the same when I moved back to London and just, what's my place here? I don't know what my role is anymore in the dynamics of you know my friends and it's a very kind of intriguing time to go through and and figure out what your new role or your new spot is in what is your home really yeah absolutely and i think you're exactly right you know when when you're an expat and you come home it's let's get the gang together let's all go out jason's back rebecca's back let's go they're back they're back <laughs> let's hear their adventures you know that sort of thing and you're right it does play with you and you feel like a celebrity special. you feel yeah. special you, yeah. you know which by the way is all anybody wants is to feel special and and unique and that you're right that sort of plays with you and then you get back and there's the big fanfare because you're back permanently seemingly and then all of a sudden that sort of fades away and it's like all right well you know what are we doing guys like you know what's the the thing the energy to keep this yes you know, life going and yeah. it's a very traumatic experience for sure to like you said to realize that the place that you thought you had is easier gone or or shifted significantly and it's it's there's an identity crisis that happens mm. I think. and i think it's a it's another example of how quickly life can mm. change we talked about that in the earlier parts of your story around disneyland and 9-11 one day life is one way the next day different i think that we kind of see that don't we in these 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 triggers for change and transformation in our lives that often sometimes we plan them and we're responsible for them but more often than not they're out of our hands and, and out of our control 
And I wonder how much of that came into play in your third and final chapter, which is a bittersweet chapter, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This last chapter, which truthfully, I'm still probably in, in a big way, Mm -hmm. and will be for a while. This was not more than two or three years ago, but flashing back, it was just before. It was 2009. It was March of 2009. And I was offered the job in Abu Dhabi in September of 2009. But in March of 2009, my mom was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, which had metastasized to her liver. She, at the time, was thought she only had months to live, you know, three to four months to live. And they, you know, she went through surgeries and and she went through liver surgery. She had complications associated with that. All of that leading up to this September decision to go. And that played a big, a big part of it. But my mom, you know, she was a doctor and doctors are the worst patients. And mm. she never, you know, treated her herself well, her body well to speak of, did not go to get the colonoscopy that she should have gotten when she should have gotten it. Battled for, for nearly 10 years, you know, colon cancer that had eventually gone to her liver, her lungs, her lymph nodes. And she passed away in October of 2018. And it was just about that time that I was moving back from my second stint in Dubai. Mm-hmm. I was working for a production. It was an animated film that was basically going through a massive meltdown. The financiers that had claimed that they were able to finance the movie, that ended up falling apart. Uh, the production ended up falling apart. I'm stuck in Dubai for all intents and purposes, uh, thinking, all right, I've got to figure out a way to get out of here. And it was in July of 2018 that I was taking a flight from Dubai to Los Angeles, as as you know, I've done dozens of times before. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when you're on those flights for 16 hours, there's only so many movies you can, can watch, and yeah. and only and only you know so so many times you can like you know endure the kid kicking your seat. That I was like, all right, I'm gonna get up and walk around. So I get up and I walk around, and you know, I, I would stand by the galleys of the plane and and talk to passengers or the crew if they're walking by, that sort of thing. I'm standing there minding my own business again. This flight attendant says, uh, "Hi, can I can I get you anything?" Which is, you know, both a would you like something, and also can you like leave me alone? Like <laughs> <laughs> you're in the way. What are you, what are you doing here? Go, go away. And so I said, I said, no, I'm fine. I'm just hanging out, you know, just, just, you know, just chilling. And so that turned into a three hour conversation. And this was Martina, who she's originally from Slovakia and was a environmental scientist by uh, education and trade. And like me, I decided that she wanted to travel the world. And so she had a choice to either go get her doctorate or join Emirates as a flight attendant. And she joined Emirates and she flew to 70 countries, as she always reminds me. (laughs) And we were talking and and we just hit it off. And I think she missed, you know, a couple meal services. And we were, you know. (laughs) I was going to say, three hours is a long time. Didn't she have a job to do? (laughs) Which, you know, which, and it's funny because the other flight attendants started realizing and they were like, don't worry, we'll cover for you. You keep chatting. And in fact, (laughs) one girl, one girl who was working with Martina said, you guys are going to get married one day. And she's like, no, no. And it was funny because, again, we were just having a great conversation. And yeah. as the plane is descending, we're, we're landing in L.A., 
I have to immediately jump on a plane afterwards to go to Montana to visit my mm-hmm. fa- my folks. I'm like, all right, Jason, don't be that guy. Don't be the guy, the scumbag who like asks a flight attendant for her number. You know, it was a good conversation. Leave it at that. You know, move on with your life. Don't read more to it than what it was. And as I'm standing there saying this to myself in my head, Martina turns to me and she says, would you like to, you know, maybe stay in contact once we get back to to Dubai? And I said, yes, absolutely. Here's my number. And so, I took her number and I, I waited an appropriate amount of time, uh, I think about mm-hmm. three hours. Uh, <laughs> and I messaged her and I said, you know, again, it was super friendly. Thank you so much for, for a great conversation. You made the flight enjoyable, you know, that sort of thing. Here's my number. This is Jason, by the way. I mean, literally from there, we were messaging daily and had not seen each other from July until October. But messaged, you know, in in, mm. in that time, always very friendly. It was just, you know, keeping up. How is how are how are the day? How are the things? What country are you in right now? How is your mom? Uh, all these sorts of things. And we had basically a crossover of four days in Dubai between the time that I was meant to move away permanently, and she was going to be there on on basically between airline flight trips. In my mind, I said, all right, there's three there's three scenarios here, right? Best case scenario when we meet again in person is that, you know, it's nice and we're friends, but it kind of like fades away and they're, you know, it's friendly, but it's cordial, but we know there's Mm. probably nothing there. The next, the next best scenario is that we meet and we hate each other. We don't get along, (laughs) you know, like that'd be, that'd be actually ideal. Like if we hate each other and we, we don't get along, we argue, then uh, we know there's nothing there. The worst case scenario, the worst case scenario is that we see each other and we hit it off and oh my god now what Mm. you know because now it changes everything yeah that's exactly what happened we sat down at the table for our reconnection and i think we you know talked again for another three four hours you know Mm. straight away and we spent the next four days together i was like oh my god what are we what are we gonna do what are we gonna do Mm. and it was flying out of dubai leaving her that day and arriving without exaggeration hours before my mom passed away mm. that evening, that next evening, that two, ma- I mean, massive events in your life, you know, meeting yeah. wh- who would become my, my future wife and losing my mom mm. within hours of each other. That was one of, again, the, the hardest, most transformative periods of time in my life. And obviously it's, it's, you know, Martina says all the time, she's like, I wish I could have met your mom. And I I do too, but it wouldn't have been meeting my mom as I as I remember my right. mom. Because my mom was so smart, you know, she was obviously a doctor. She was so, you know, she was a strong woman. She was somebody who had a ton of opinions and was fearless in in her, you know, uh, expression of those. But by the end, this, you know, cancer takes its toll, you know, mm. chemotherapy takes its toll. And the the those, you know, those two powerful women will will have to figure out some other place to meet. Yeah. Because they can't do it, you know, the way I would have liked. Mm. But it's interesting because you sit there and you think, okay, this is just the beginning of the next chapter, the next journey or what have you. I remember when when my mom passed away, feeling not not relief, but feeling that her, you know, her struggle was over, her her fight was over, but that she hadn't necessarily 
gone anywhere. And mm-hmm. it's a difficult thing to articulate because, you know, obviously it's, it's very hard to lose a parent, but there did, there's still this, this such a strong sense that she's ever present. And I feel yeah. like anybody who's lost a parent will, will feel that or some, anybody close to you, 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 you do have that sense of that person still there. And my dad, who I ended up staying with for a period of almost a, a year after my mom's death, because to me, I, I couldn't imagine him walking into a dark house or, you know, sitting alone on a sofa, cooking meals for one, that sort of thing. And yeah. so after I got back from Dubai, rather than move back to LA or move anywhere else, I, I stayed with him for, uh, yeah, like I said, almost a year. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, that was something that, that, you know, he needed, I think certainly I, I needed, yeah. you know, and v- so often we would just, you know, you spend the whole time talking about the person who is, has passed away and remembrances and funny stories, sad stories, regrets, all those things that I think we needed to mm-hmm. get through that, that, that period of time. It's really interesting how life, I don't know if you believe in divine timing or how life, the timing of life can be so almost perfect when we're not in control of it you know this really kind of pronounced or magical moment of meeting Martina and having that really strong connection as you said but the timing of that coinciding with losing your mother and then being able to to be with your dad right work or whatever nothing getting in the way of that being able to give the both of you that time and space to be together I mean sometimes I think we wouldn't be able to plot things so perfectly if um if we tried it's so true absolutely and you can only really know about this looking backwards and steve mm-hmm. jobs talked about that yeah. in his that very, very famous commencement speech but you you know connecting the dots backwards had i not yeah. gone to abu dhabi in the first place in 2009 there's no way i would have met martina in 2018 Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, and you can you can trace so many of those things throughout your life. If I wasn't here, I couldn't have been here, and if this didn't happen to me, I couldn't have you know uh, done this. And so, in that way, I'm always thankful for the events, good or bad, that happen. I'm I'm thankful for all of the 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 most tumultuous events because those things have led to where I am now. And I I could not we couldn't replicate where we are now by any other set of circumstances, truly, which yeah. I think is fascinating to me. But you're right. There is that that bittersweetness of I wish it had worked out differently, but it can't have worked out differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I've been listening to you um, this afternoon, it strikes me that your life is cinematic. You know, what the moments that we've spoken about today. And I don't know if I'm wondering if there's a connection between people who are natural storytellers like yourself how that feeds into how their their own stories stories play out and their own lives can seem quite big in a lot of ways that's one of the things i've taken from from our conversation today oh well thank you i think it's interesting i think that you know i think we're all interesting in different ways everybody has something really interesting that that they've that they've gone through i think that anybody who says they 
haven't is either lazy or they're not thinking hard enough. And I mean lazy in terms of really analyzing the good and bad and, and everything that happens in your life. Not being able to have the perspective, right? Because some people, sure. have, when you're in it, like, oh, that happened. Oh, yeah, but I just... Yeah, I just dealt with it or, oh, really? Or you, right. sometimes you could be so close to it, you can't see it. Right. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I mean, everybody has their own adventures. You know, my sister has, like I said, five kids and mm. those are an adventure in themselves, you know, whether it's the the pregnancy or the miracle of birth or the the raising of these kids. And it's fascinating to me and it's every day to her. It's, it's you know, it's the struggles of trying to get your kids to put their shoes on. Yeah. You know, I visit her, I go through that. And I'm like, this is so fun. This is the best. You know. <laughs> but I, I and then I get to leave and go home yeah. my beautiful home that has no crayon on the wall or anything, and that's fine. I grew up in a house where my dad said, "No tattoos, no uh, nothing on your body. Don't mark up your body." You know, because he dealt with guys had tattoos yeah. as a cop. They're usually bad guys, right? So he never had that affinity for tattoos. And so when I got my first tattoo. I hid it from him for about six months. And then then when he finally saw it and caught me with it, I told him that it was a temporary tattoo. That's, that's not a joke. He said, he's like, he's like, where'd you get that? I was like, oh, it's it's, it's temporary. He's like, well, how long is it going to last? And I was like, well, about as long as I do. So, but anyway, the second tattoo that I got was, it's a very short phrase and it's end of act one. And I have it on my, my left wrist. It, to me, sort of sums up at least my life perfectly, where anytime there's a massive life event, I would always say to myself, all right, well, this is just the end of act one. And I said it the first time to myself, I was conscious of it when I moved to Abu Dhabi. And as I was on that plane mm -hmm. and I was landing in the Middle East, I said, all right, this is the end of act one. Everything that comes after this is the big adventure. When I moved back from Abu Dhabi, I said, okay, this is the end of act one. You know, this is that big change in my life. That's irreversible. Now, what do we do? You know, I lost my mom. It was the end of act one. This is life without my mom. You know, this is yeah. my life with Martina. And so that's how I've treated so much of my life is this idea. Okay. Okay. What's the next, what's the adventure that's, that's ahead. Um, and that's why mm. it was so important for me to have it on my body for the rest of my life. Forever. Forever. <laughs> Because I think that speaks to your natural optimism and you're a very positive person, which leads me to my final question for today. Bearing all that in mind, what is your mantra for modern living? Or my motto for modern living is just there's nothing that can't be done. I think that we as human beings prove that every day to ourselves and we prove it on a global scale, we prove it on a personal scale. There's a sense of optimism that comes from that. You know, nobody wants to hear that the best days are behind us. Nobody wants to hear that we're in for a dark winter. Nobody wants to hear that, you know, it can't be done. That to me is the biggest sort of inspiration killer. Pessimism is so easy. Negativity is so easy. It's very easy to dwell on why you were cheated, why you were wronged, why you uh, didn't get what you deserve, why the world is, you know, it's very easy to live in that space. It's, it's far more difficult, I think, to have true realistic optimism, right? And optimism isn't, you know, saying everything's great when the house is on fire. It's, it's saying that we have a challenge and we can, we're going to figure out a way to work mm. through this because we're smart and we, we are inspired. And, and that to me has led to all the great, you know, personal discoveries of my life and the adventures, as you say, because there was that sense of optimism of like, there's nothing that can't be done. Of course, we can go to the Middle East. Of course, we can, mm -hmm. of course, we can uh, work 
you know, 20 hours a day. Why not? You know, of course we can, you know, do all these great things, especially now when I think so much of what we're hearing on a, on a daily basis is can't, shouldn't, won't, no, mm. why, why not? Yeah. Well, it's that thing around, isn't it? That what you tell yourself, that becomes your truth. And so it's comes back again to the, making the choice. Do I choose, do I want to choose something that's, you know, negative or restrictive or or do I want to choose something that's expansive and go along for the ride and see what Absolutely. happens? Absolutely. And challenging and really sort of challenging ourselves because, you know, that takes work as well. And it is, you know, it is scary, I think, so many times to, to make those big mm-hmm. life decisions. And it is scary to upend your life in, in whatever way you're you're doing it. I mean, even now talking about, you know, we're, we're at the stage now, Martine and I, where we're looking at Okay, what do what do children look like? And mm-hmm. that's as as you know, it changes the mm-hmm. game. That's mm-hmm. a scary, exciting thing. It's mm-hmm. not something that we're scared of because it's going to be too difficult, or it's you know, it's a financial strain, or it's this, or it's that, or what schools we put our kids into when the, you know, you don't think about mm-hmm. it like that. You think for me, it's I've I've never done this before. I've never had that full time parenting job, and. I remember my dad said to me when I was born, because I'm the firstborn child, really. And he said he was petrified. You know, he held he held this this tiny baby in his in his hands. And it's like, I, I'm in charge of this life now for the rest of my life. What if I screw him up? What if I screw it up? What if I, you know, what if I do something wrong? And I think that's something that I would imagine every parent feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're going through now is the taking the leap and and having our next end of act one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to wish you all the best with your next act and all the chapters to come. And thank you for spending this time with me. It's been lovely speaking. I had so much fun. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you for doing this and for highlighting stories and being an inspiration through this this podcast. And so uh, thank you for for letting me be a part of it. I I am so uh, honored and grateful. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sharing Tales. Make sure to visit our website, www.rebeccaclark.co.uk forward slash sharing tales, where you can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. While there, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, we'd really appreciate a review and a rating to help other people find this show. If you'd like to tell your friends and family, that would be amazing too. Big thanks to our sound producer and editor, the wonderful Erin Maguire at Beyond Golia Productions. Be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now.